along. And then turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. We have a little bit longer passage of Scripture today, not too long, but a little bit. The end of Matthew chapter 18. So please turn there, verses 21 through 35. The teaching and then a parable. So please listen carefully as this is the word of the Lord. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he had begun to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. And you have brought us again to this gospel to learn about Jesus. We ask this morning that you would give us the grace to understand forgiveness, one of the hardest tasks of life in the kingdom. So help us to take the forgiveness, the grace, the love, and the mercy that we've been given and give it to others. So by your Spirit, open this gospel to us. Help us to see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. I've never met Jennifer Thompson, and her story is heartbreaking. And it may be hard for some of you to listen to, so I will try to tell it gently. Back in 1984, when Jennifer Thompson was a college student, someone broke into her apartment, held a knife to her throat, and assaulted her. And it might have finished her, but Jennifer was a determined young lady. She studied her assailant, resolved to, quote, make sure he was put in prison where he would rot. Within a few days, she identified her attacker from a series of police photos, 
and then picked the same man out of a police lineup. Courageously, she put her hand on a Bible and testified in court. And based on her testimony, Ronald Cotton was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Jennifer celebrated, was ready to move on with her life. Unbelievably, two years later, Ronald Cotton was granted a new trial. And this time, the defense brought in a different suspect. Jennifer testified she'd never seen this other man before. And again, Ronald Cotton was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. And again, Jennifer relished the justice. Eleven years passed since the attack. Jennifer got married and had children. And then the case reemerged a third time. Forensic technology had advanced much uh, over the years, and the court asked her to give a DNA sample, which she did gladly, convinced it would only solidify the case against Ronald Cotton. And then the unthinkable happened. The district attorney knocked on her door and told her that DNA testing had proven that Ronald Cotton was not her attacker. In fact, the man that she had testified that she had never seen before was actually the man who attacked her. Jennifer Thompson had helped send the wrong man to prison. Her testimony had stolen 11 years from Ronald Cotton, and she was utterly devastated. She asked the DA, how do I give someone back 11 years? Now, in addition to the nightmare of having been attacked, she was overwhelmed with guilt. Her situation is incredibly complex and seemed to many to be quite hopeless. So what happened in a newspaper article, Helen O'Neill told the story of how Jennifer got her life back. She says, after two more years of suffering from the burden of guilt and shame, after two years of crying every day, Jennifer finally made up her mind, and she drove 50 miles back to the town where the attack took place. She went to the local church and was ushered into the sanctuary by the pastor. She went up to the front and sat down in the second pew, right next to Ronald Cotton. She had prayed for the strength to face this man, and so she did. And she softly told him, I'm sorry. If I'd spent every day for the rest of my life telling you how sorry I am, it wouldn't come close to what I feel. And for a long time, it was very quiet. Ronald Cotton remained very calm. Finally, he spoke, and he said, I'm not mad at you. I've never been mad at you. I just want you to have a good life. And as dusk fell, they finally made their way out of the church. Both of their families were waiting outside. And they embraced and said goodbye. And in the article, there's a picture of Jennifer and Ronald sitting on a bench. And they're both smiling in a way that can't be fake. The smiles of people finally at peace with one another. So you might ask, how is Ronald Cotton able to forgive this woman who'd wrongly accused him and sent him to prison for 11 years? That in and of itself is another amazing story. In prison, Ronald Cotton hated the man who had actually committed the crime. And he planned out an elaborate scheme on how he was going to kill this man. He told his father about it, and his father pleaded with him not to do it, but to turn to Christ instead. And Ronald Cotton did. And he found that Jesus was the one who had himself received um, 
who himself had understood what it was like to be unjustly accused. Jesus was the one who could unpack all of the burdens that Ronald Cotton felt that were weighing him down. And because Ronald Cotton received the gracious forgiveness of his Heavenly Father, he was finally able to forgive Jennifer Thompson just as graciously. And the brilliant light of Christ shone through his own life so that he, in turn, could demonstrate the grace and mercy of Christ to Jennifer. It's a remarkable story. Jesus makes the same promise to us that he made to Ronald Cotton that persuaded Ronald Cotton. And that promise is found in Matthew 11, where he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus has wonderful wisdom and almighty power. And when those two things, wisdom and power, are combined, he can do for you what he did for Ronald and Jennifer. And that's what he's about to teach Peter in today's passage. So let's turn there, Matthew 18, starting at verse 21. We start by seeing that forgiveness is unlimited. Forgiveness is unlimited. We have to make a connection here with our context. See, it's right on the heels of explaining the responsibility of church discipline, which we talked about last week. The need to enforce purity in the body of Christ uh, so much that Peter asks this question about forgiving a brother who sins against him. So then, starting at verse 21, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Some versions say seven times seven times, times 70 times. But that very first phrase, then Peter came up and said to him, shows the relationship between last week's passage and this week's passage. Christ isn't negating the teaching on discipline. The church is to be involved in seeking to correct and purify the body so the church can be holy and blameless before the Lord. Discipline is exercised in order to correct and restore. It's done out of love and compassion towards the offender so that the snare of sin might reign in his or her life. And it demonstrates the church's view, can't get those pages apart, demonstrates the church's view that the church is to be this holy people of God. But in this context, forgiveness has to do with the believer's own heart towards those who have offended or weighed him down, particularly towards those who have had discipline and acted against them. Even if discipline's been applied in such a circumstance in order to snatch this professing Christian out of the jaws of sin, the attitude of the heart towards that offender is to be one of forgiveness. The compassion, love, and grace that have been shown to the Christian are supposed to motivate him to forgive those who have offended him. 
So are these contradictory issues, discipline and forgiveness? Well, Jesus would say, certainly not. Discipline is an act of love that considers the good of the offender and the offended, while forgiveness is the attitude of the heart towards every brother and sister, even those that you have been involved with in discipline. And having made that connection, we take up Peter's question, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And you have to think, I mean, who among us has never been offended by someone else? For that matter, who among us has never offended someone else? We all comprise the offenders and the offended. It's part of life. As sinners, we will offend. And living in a world of sinners, we will be offended. And I think Peter got that. And I think it's a legitimate question. How often shall I forgive that person that continues to sin against me? Now, the standard Jewish teaching of the time uh, found in the Talmud gives this instruction. It says, when a man sins against another, they forgive him once, they forgive him a second time, they forgive him a third time, but the fourth time they do not forgive him. So the fourth time is a charm in this case. And so Peter's thinking, his recommendation of exceeding the Jewish teaching is pretty generous, as many as seven times, twice as much plus one. It's pretty lenient, so Peter's thinking. But it's really a question of how far does grace and mercy extend? And Jesus' response to Peter establishes the theme of this parable that he's about to tell which is basically the forgiven forgive. The forgiven forgive. If that's the only thing you take away, you will get the main point. The forgiven forgive. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And what he's calling for is not to keep a record of how many times we forgive others, sort of checking off the numbers until we hit either 77 or 490, as some versions imply. Said the language uh, implies our forgiveness towards others needs to be uncounted or unlimited. It needs to be way more than anything we think it is. Some say three. Peter thinks he's very generous, says seven. And Jesus said, ten times as much or more. I don't actually even want you to keep count. And we have to see that Jesus is referring to the response of the individual believer towards others. Before it was the response of the church in the section on discipline. Now it's the response of the individual. And he doesn't mean that forgiveness implies any irresponsibility towards sin. The principle that's laid down for us as Christians when a brother, and the implication in Peter's question is that specifically referring to Christians, when a brother sins against us, we're not to count the number of times we forgive. In the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. But forgiveness is harder than it sounds because it forces us to do something that we don't want to do. And that's because forgiveness cancels the debt. 
That's the next blank there. Forgiveness cancels the debt. We begin the parable in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, to explain the nature of forgiving others, Jesus is telling a story of a man who's shown mercy and yet is merciless towards another. With any parable, a particular point is driven home that we have to grasp. There's usually, with a parable, one main point and usually one or two sort of minor points. And in this case... The main point is those granted forgiveness by God have to give that same forgiveness to others. The emphasis is sort of almost in reverse. It's showing us that the graceless prove themselves incapable of receiving grace. You might say it's similar to what Jesus said in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So we see first that the king has come to settle accounts with his servants. The intention might be these particular servants are other governing officials. You might think of a Roman emperor who had kings of regions under him. This isn't the uh, valet, so to speak. This is a a governing uh, official who has responsibilities to the king. And uh, the one in question may have had responsibility of receiving taxes, on the king's behalf. So when the time of reckoning comes, he's settling accounts, his uh, essentially extorting the kingdom funds is revealed. And the fact that this particular servant, it says, was brought to him, indicates that he may have come unwillingly. He may even have been arrested for his crime. And whatever he had done, he owes the king 10,000 talents. Now, you have to do some math in your head. One talent is the equivalent of about 10 years' wages for the average worker. A healthy, strong, uh, dedicated worker would earn somewhere between 5 to 10 talents in his lifetime. So 10,000 talents is an enormous sum of money. Uh, and according to the ancient historian Josephus, would have been greater than all the taxes collected in Palestine during this period. Now, if you've done the math, you're now somewhere in the neighborhood of $100 million or more. And verse 25 tells us he could not pay. He clearly doesn't have the means to repay what he owes the king. His only option is to cry for mercy. And we read, since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Obviously, he's taken this money and spent it on himself, built a a big palace or something like that. Anyway, it's all going to be taken away, all his assets, everything that he's uh, spent the money on and sold. 
and his chances of repaying this debt are virtually non-existent. And that's the point I think that Jesus is making. We owe a debt to God for our sins that we can never, ever, ever repay. We read verse 26, So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. But he can't. We know he can 10,000 talents. Despite his promise, he doesn't have the ability to do this. Can he really repay what he owes, even with a tremendous amount of patience by the king? He is sunk. But the king has great mercy. Verse 27, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now here's a marvelous picture of what takes place in true forgiveness. It begins with divine compassion, a compassion that arises out of the goodness and kindness of God. And compassion with the king is not simply a passing thought, but it leads to decisive action. He released the man now held captive due to his debt. And forgiveness does that as well. We're released from the bondage of sin. And sometimes this involves liberation from certain habits or patterns or practices of sin. And as uh, Jesus declares in the Gospel of John, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Forgiveness releases the debtor. And that's what the word uh, forgave means. It's to be released from the debt. The debt is canceled. And in this case, the implication is to be released from the penalty of sin through Christ bearing that penalty on our behalf at the cross. The Apostle Paul wrote that to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 2. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So you would think that one so forgiven of such an enormous debt would be filled with just overflowing gratitude. The most natural thing in the world be then to forgive others. But the story takes a very different turn. And when it does, we see that unforgiveness reveals the heart. Unforgiveness reveals the heart, starting at verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. His fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now remember, the first servant is forgiven 10,000 talents, $100 million. Years and years, decades of wages for lots of people. In comparison, the debt that his fellow servant owed him was 100 denarii, a denarii being a day's wage. So this is somewhere from, you know, average wages, probably fifteen to $30,000. So to put it in our terms, servant one's been forgiven $100 million plus, servant two, fifteen grand. So a little bit of a difference here. It's like, it's a few hundred thousandth the size of the first guy's debt. You can't compare it. It's a pittance uh, in comparison. 
And this guy does the same thing the first servant does. He, he falls to the ground, he pleads with them, verse 29, have patience with me and I will repay you. But the ser first servant refuses the second servant, throws him in jail. So what's missing here? What's missing so that the first servant gives him no pause uh, uh, here, and in fact, it salts uh, the man. It says he began to choke him, even though the amount he owed him is trivial in comparison. So what's missing? Well, a number of things, and I've listed them there. First, he fails to feel the weight of his own debt. You might say he didn't feel the weight of his own sin. Notice in verse 26, he says almost the same thing as the second servant. Except he told the king, if he was patient with him, I will pay you everything. And he obviously doesn't have the means to repay everything. It was an enormous debt. So let me ask again, bring it back to our terms. Do you think you're capable of balancing your accounts with God? Are you able to settle accounts with God. Do you think if he just gives you enough time that you'll be able to square things away so that you can owe him nothing for your sin when it comes time for judgment? We simply have to contemplate the magnitude of our own sin. And that's not natural. What's natural is we're constantly downplaying our own sin. Your sin's pretty bad. Mine, not so much. You know, but I feel really bad for you. That was a bad thing you did. When I did that same thing, well, there were extenuating circumstances. And that's what we do. It is supernatural to really contemplate the magnitude of our own sin, to feel the weight of our sin. But it's a good practice for us to do for fear that we think too little of the grace of God. Second, he really fails to comprehend forgiveness. And we do the same thing. We forget how the forgiveness provided through Christ cancels the debt we owe. And either we think the debt we owe wasn't all that big to begin with, or we still like to carry it a little bit around thinking we're going to somehow pay this off ourselves. But the Lord strikes it from the books, wipes the clay, clean, whatever metaphor you want to use, it's canceled, it's gone. Third, he fails to be filled with gratitude. Gratitude should always follow forgiveness. Gratitude should inevitably lead to worship. And worship affects our hearts. I think many of us could testify, you've come on a Sunday morning when you didn't feel like worshiping, you didn't feel like singing, you got some issue going on, maybe something with family or work, or maybe there's somebody here you don't like, or you're sick of me, or whatever. But about halfway through the music, you realize you're singing and worshiping, and you've kind of forgotten whatever that other thing was. And that happens to a lot of us. And a lot of times the way to worship is just to start and start thanking God for some of the things that he has done that's brought out in the songs. But this guy has forgotten that. His heart's not tender. It's not, he hasn't been humbled by worship 
by seeing all and singing all the great truths of God. And finally, he doesn't get grace. He fails to contemplate grace. In this case, and in our case, grace is shown to the unworthy, the incapable, and the hopeless. And grace does something to us. It motivates us as nothing else can motivate us. When we've known the grace of God in Christ, then we should gladly repeat such grace in the desire to show the same grace to others, to other fellow sinners. Uh, Martin Luther said, we should also forgive the brother who sinned against us so that by that forgiveness we prove and testify that we indeed have received and accepted forgiveness from God. But see, then the story actually goes from bad to worse. Because once unforgiveness reveals your heart that you don't understand forgiveness, that you don't understand grace, then it also reveals that maybe you weren't really saved after all. Maybe you really weren't a believer despite your profession of faith or that you really don't know the king despite claims to the contrary. And if that's the case, then unforgiveness endangers your soul. Unforgiveness endangers your soul because it reveals that your soul never was actually reached in the first place. Look at verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now the king moved with anger when learning about this uh, servant's merciless actions towards a fellow sermon, summons the man, verse 32, tells him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, reminds him of the mercy that he had been shown, and then makes his point, verse 33, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. I think the Greek here is actually much more intense. Great Reformed commentator William Hendrickson points out that what it says was, was this not your lasting obligation? He explains it's this man's duty not only to be filled with unceasing gratitude, but also to let his master's mercy, which he, the servant, had been the recipient of, become the example for his own feeling and conduct towards this other man. Such lasting obligation belongs to each of us that have known the grace of God's forgiveness. And here's where we have to really contemplate forgiveness. Have you considered what it means for a holy God to declare you forgiven? One that is infinitely holy, condescended to treat you, an unholy one, with loving kindness. Though your spiritual debt due to your sin leaves you with an eternal obligation of divine wrath, he came to you in kindness 
and compassion. Heavenly Father doesn't just strike the debt from the books, as seems to be the case in this story. He sends his own son to pay the debt in full. And it's fitting that the last words uttered by our Lord on the cross are, it is finished, literally meaning it's paid in full. God doesn't overlook or excuse your sin. He balances the books through the blood of his son at the cross so that you might be forgiven. And even though you can never do anything to repay what Christ has accomplished for you, God has graciously forgiven you. So it's only fitting as those who have received that forgiveness that we show the same mercy towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. And having told the story, Jesus then wraps up, makes his point, verse 35, so also my heavenly Father would do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Now does this mean if some people have suggested that you can lose that forgiveness that you've already received by not forgiving your brother? I don't think so. Rather than losing what's been given, the reality is the one who will not forgive knows nothing of forgiveness. Because forgiven people forgive. As the crowds follow Christ, came up with their own idea of the kingdom, Jesus is driving home this clear point that being a citizen of the kingdom involves even forgiving those who have wronged you. It's the same truth that he set forth in the Lord's Prayer. You go back and look at that, Matthew 6. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The king in the story hands the first servant over in verse 34, and anger delivers him to the jailers. Of course, this man could never repay what it was owed. So the implication is that the same king, who was so willing to uh, just overwhelmingly, bountifully forgive this man, will also apply the most severe judgment. Dr. D.A. Carson's comments are helpful here. He says, Jesus sees no incongruity, no contradiction, in the actions of a heavenly Father who forgives so bountifully and punishes so ruthlessly, and neither should we. Indeed, it's precisely because he's a God of such compassion and mercy, he cannot possibly accept those uh, as his who are devoid of compassion and mercy. It's not to say the king's compassion has to be earned. Far from it. The servant is granted freedom only by virtue of the king's forgiveness. But as in Matthew 6, those who are forgiven must forgive. Otherwise, they're showing themselves incapable of receiving forgiveness. But it's just, it's not enough to know what does the Bible teach about forgiveness. After all, it teaches us uh, about forgiveness. It teaches us that we're forgiven. and teaches us that we should forgive others. But as with most of the scriptures, it's easier said than done. And the reality is we just don't know uh, we just don't know uh, what is forgiveness from God's perspective. We just don't need to know that. We need to know so much more. We need to know, we need to fully understand what is our role in forgiveness? What is our role? 
So we're left with this full answer to Peter's question, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? You might occasionally ask the same question. And our Lord insists that the norm for kingdom citizens is to forgive in the same gracious way that you've been forgiven. And that can happen two ways. First, when someone wrongs us, we forgive by laying aside the desire for revenge, purposefully loving that person, seeking as much as possible um, to repay the wrongs done to us with kindness. We forgive the offender. It's not that the person necessarily asked for forgiveness, but as one that is forgiven, we forgive intentionally. We might never be good friends with that person due to their lifestyle, their practices, and yet we lay aside the bitterness of an unforgiving spirit so we can forgive them. But sometimes, the second thing we need to see is that sometimes we're called upon to forgive an offending brother and be reconciled to them. And there is a big difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. They are not the same thing. One thing, forgiveness, doesn't automatically mean the other thing, reconciliation. In the case of reconciliation, we're talking about a brother who's asked for forgiveness and given some evidence of repentance. We're not to keep that person at arm's length, but to treat him as one for whom God has blotted out uh, his sins. We embrace him, we receive him into fellowship, treat him as a brother in Christ. Even though he has offended us, Once he sought forgiveness and demonstrated evidence of repentance, we lay aside the offense and receive this one into full fellowship. Understand what I'm saying. We're to forgive anyone who uh, uh, wrongs us, anyone who offends us. But that doesn't necessarily mean we're reconciled. To be reconciled takes actions on both sides. It's not just up to you. The other person has to want to be forgiven, has to show some evidence of being repentant. You can't be reconciled with someone who doesn't want to be reconciled, however much you want it. And that's our practice, and it's only accomplished when we come to know the grace of God ourselves. But knowing the grace of forgiveness and understanding something of what it costs the Heavenly Father to forgive us with gratitude, we have a lasting obligation to forgive. Luther was right. He has all the best quotes. And he said, forgiveness devours sin. I think that's a great quote. Forgiveness devours sin. And having been forgiven, we find the grace necessary to show that same grace of forgiveness to those who have offended us. Which in the end leaves us with a question which is simply this, who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to forgive? You should pray for them now. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close.
Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us a king. Lord, this morning we ask as we go to the Lord's Supper, open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Open our eyes so that we can see what it cost to forgive us. Help us to understand the enormous debt we have that we can never repay. Lord, I know there's people here who don't forgive because they don't feel forgiven. There's probably some people here who don't forgive because they haven't been forgiven. They've never come before your throne of grace seeking the forgiveness that can only come from you. Lord, help them to do that this morning. Lord, remind us that the Lord's Supper is all about forgiveness and having our debt canceled because it was paid with the blood of Christ. Help us to remember that as we come to your table this morning. Amen.